Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Krenitsya, a podcast series about interesting and remarkable Ukrainians from around the world. Today is Friday, June 11, 2021. This episode is a special edition produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has been serving the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest on this episode is Odan Shandur, who is currently president of Shandur and Company, a management consulting firm, and is the past president of the Ukrainian American Bar Association. In addition to talking about his career, he has some interesting anecdotes about the Declaration of Ukrainian Independence in 1991, which we, of course, will be celebrating this year. Well, Dan, welcome. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So to start off with, I'd like to get a little background on you. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your family and where they came from and where you grew up, your education, and then get into your professional background a bit? Certainly. Um, My family on my father's side uh, comes from Ujhorod in Zakarpatia. And uh, my mother's side comes from Lviv. And my grandfather on my mother's side was Professor Volodymyr Sichinsky, a well-known architect, historian, and academic. My father, prior to World War II, served as the Carpathia Ukrainian representative from Carpathia Ukraine, from Zakopatia, to the Czechoslovak government in Prague. And um, in fact, wrote a, um, a very detailed book uh, that was published by Harvard Ukraine Research Institute called Carpathia Ukraine, A Political and Legal History. My own experience is I was born and raised in Patterson, New Jersey. I went to the Wharton School undergraduate, uh, then pursued a career, which was a mixture of business and law. Uh, I never enjoyed or thought I wanted to go to court, as unlike many lawyers. Uh, so I pursued a JD MBA from uh, New York University and then went back and got an LLM, a postgraduate law degree in corporation law. Bodan, your dad's experience in Carpatho, Ukraine, can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly, it was a very, very uh, important and difficult time in the world's history. And much like the Middle East today is a focus of attention, at that point, uh, Czechoslovakia and Carpathia, Ukraine. Carpathia, Ukraine was a part of Czechoslovakia. It was, um, they actually voted to join Czechoslovakia in a, in a federation. So it consisted of the Czechs, the Slovaks, and the Carpathia, Ukrainians. And as we know from history, Adolf Hitler had his eyes set on Czechoslovakia and proceeded to uh, move against Czechoslovakia uh, more politically than militarily, first by annexing the Sudeten area uh, and then finally militarily. And at the same time, Hungary, uh, with the consent and, um, and blessing of Hitler, attacked on March 15, 1939, attacked Carpathia, Ukraine, as a part of Hitler's uh, movement to take that area over with, with an ally, Hungary. And so what was your father's role in the uh, Carpathia, Ukraine Republic, which was unfortunately very short-lived? Well, his role as representative uh, was to, in effect, be the um, 
it was like being the sole representative. There was no other representative in Prague. So he represented all the interests of Carpathia Ukraine to the federal government. The president of Carpathia Ukraine at the time was uh, Reverend uh, Augustine Voloshin. And uh, he worked very closely with, uh, with uh, President Voloshin and, and others. Part of his most important role had to do with, believe it or not, economic things. He was responsible for negotiating a very important contract for the supply of timber in 1938, which was an important thing for, for Carpathia Ukraine. And when things started to fall apart as far as the invasion, uh, he was also involved in seeking assistance from world powers. In fact, uh, they declared independence at that point and sought assistance, but it was uh, too little too late. And I think you mentioned that your dad was also an attorney. Yes, yes, he got his Doctor of Law degree from Charles University, Carlos Universitet in uh, Prague. And did he ever practice law once he left Carpathia, Ukraine? No, he did not. Of course, in, in the United States, you have to be admitted to the bar, and that would require three years of law school. And at that point, he had a family and, and couldn't, couldn't spare the time. But uh, he worked when he came here. Uh, he worked with uh, Ukaka. In fact, he was one of the founding members of Ukaka in 1948, 49. Uh, he came here in 1947, and uh, he worked with what was called uh, PAUK, which is the Pan-American Ukrainian Conference. And he was a non-voting observer on behalf of uh, Ukraine, not just Carpathia Ukraine, but on behalf of Ukraine at the United Nations. And he did that until 1960 when he took a position with the U.S. federal government. And we've chatted about this before, but you mentioned that your dad was in his 90s when he finished the book. Yes, well, it was published in 1997, and he turned 90 in 1997, so that was uh, quite an accomplishment. I have read it, and I do highly recommend it. And again, the title of it is Carpatho-Ukraine in the 20th Century by Vincent Schandler, and it was published by the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. So let's turn our attention now to 1991, since we are going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence in August. I understand that at that time, you were traveling quite a bit to Ukraine. Yes, uh, I had started traveling to Ukraine in 1990 when I joined uh, a large um, Wall Street law firm that made me their uh, head of Eastern Europe practice. And um, so I started traveling then. And during the course of my travels, I uh, became friendly and uh, good friends with uh, Sidhi Holovati. And Sidhi Holovati was a member of uh, the Berkhovna Rada, the parliament. And he was also sat on the commission or committee for foreign affairs. And in anticipation of having the referendum on December 1st, he asked me if I was willing to be a, one of the international observers and he issued the uh, invitation on behalf of uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee to the Ukrainian American Bar Association. As it turned out, out of the people attending uh, from the United States, I was the only Ukrainian American lawyer. Uh, so I ended up by default being the chairman of the, of the group. Uh, and there were several Americans, uh, non-Ukrainian descent that were with us, or a couple Ukrainians as well, but non-lawyers. What was interesting was that just before the referendum, there had been plans to have a 
U.S. delegation there. Other countries had delegations. Uh, Germany, France uh, had a delegation. Canada had a very large delegation. And there were only 57 observers of this first election and referendum. Whereas, of course, today when they have elections, uh, you have thousands of people as observers. At that point, there are only 57 of us. So it was a very limited group. But we ended up uh, in a situation where Senator Richard Luger, together with, uh, with uh, Senator Nunn and a number of other senators and congressmen, were planning to go to Ukraine as part of an official delegation of observers. And uh, a week beforehand, the uh, representative, the Soviet Union representative to the UN, uh, Gennady Govenko, visited Senator Luger's office and personally told him from the Soviet authorities that uh, it would not be welcome that uh, any kind of uh, observer group from the United States officially would not be welcome. And so that entirely fell apart. And it's unfortunate that it did, but that's what happened. And Bodan, what was the mood like in Kiev at the time regarding independence? Oh, that's a very good question. There was tremendous excitement, but a lot of trepidation. I recall on the day of the referendum, it was a Sunday. The weather was very nice, which was fortunate. There was a trepidation, meaning that people were uneasy. Uh, there were rumors about Kiev that um, that the Red Army was uh, encircling Kiev in the event that uh, the referendum was voted in favor of independence. Uh, people didn't know exactly what was going on, uh, but yet there was also this feeling of uh, excitement and feeling of uh, of hope for the future. And were you there for the actual referendum in December? Oh, yes. I was there December 1st. I, I arrived several days ahead of time to prepare. The, um, the referendum was held in accordance with the international principles of fair and democratic elections. And each one of us uh, in our group, uh, we were assigned to polling places outside Kiev. Now, some of our 57 group were flown to different parts of Ukraine, to eastern Ukraine, to Donbass area, to Donetsk, Luhansk. Other people went to Lviv, other people went to Odessa. Uh, the major cities were covered, and uh, we had the authority to spot check any voting precinct that we decided we wanted to. My particular task during the voting was to examine the integrity of the ballot box, which uh, the ballot boxes were constructed in such a way that uh, they were made out of glass uh, with wood frames, uh, and it was my job to make sure that the um, that the boxes were intact, and also to make sure that the uh, seals that were on each box, they were, they were melted seals, mat that the numbers matched up on what we had as a, um, as a central directory of, uh, of numbers for the ballot boxes. Also, there's a way they had to, we had to check to make sure there were no false bottoms in the, in the, in the boxes uh, so that the ballots could not be tampered with. So here we are, it's 30 years later, and I know you're an avid follower of events in Ukraine. What are your thoughts about Ukraine today? Will Ukraine continue to exist for the next 30 to 50 years? It's a good question. Uh, if you had asked me that question uh, on December 1st, 1991, I would have said that uh, Ukraine would not, the 50-50 chance that Ukraine would last 10 years. And uh, I would say that uh, 20 years would be a, 60, 40, maybe 70, 30, and 30 years, I would have given it only a 10% chance of surviving. 
And the reason has to do with what it takes to construct a country and, and system. Uh, it's really difficult to explain, but Ukraine had nothing. I mean, it had, forget about no army, it had no postal service. Everything was run from the center. Everything was run from Moscow. And all the bureaucracies were there, the, the decision-making bureaucracies. Now, of course, you had bureaucracies in Kiev, don't get me wrong. But all the decision-making, which is so critical in having a country and government, were all in Moscow. And every step of the way, there was no banking system. There was no central bank. Uh, uh, there were no, no system. There was no money. There was, it, they had to start literally from scratch to build the country. And you don't realize how complicated, and until one day I was walking around a day or two after the referendum, I was just looking at all the big buildings, you know, government buildings that are all the bureaucrats who are taking orders from Moscow. And I thought to myself, my God, how are they going to get all this under, how are they going to organize all this? I mean, there was no organization. Everything went to Moscow. So it was a tremendous undertaking. And I think that in retrospect, I think now Ukraine needs to take a step back uh, Ukrainians are very, very tough on themselves, and they need to take a step back and pat themselves on the back and say, you know what, okay, everything is imperfect. No, nowhere in the world is anything or life, everything perfect. But what it is, is remarkable what they managed to accomplish. And I often point to the fact that out of the 15 republics of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine has the designation of being, without doubt, the most democratic country. Uh, you look at Ukraine has had six presidents in the last 30 years. Uh, Russia has had one and a half. Um, Belarus has had one. Kazakhstan has had basically one. You can also count one and a half perhaps because of the substitutions in and out. But no one has the record of democracy that Ukraine has. And that's why it is so important for the United States to support Ukraine because Ukraine is the democratic haven in Eastern Europe without question. And the way Ukraine goes, democracy will go. Well, Don, we're almost out of time, unfortunately, but I did want to ask you one more question. I know that you have family that still lives in Zakarpatia in Ukraine. Yes. What are your thoughts about that area? Because there's a, it's a very complex situation at this point. It is. And unfortunately, Hungary is somewhat caught back in the I would say 19th century, not even 20th century, they still do not accept the results of World War I. And uh, Hungarians tend to view Zakarpatia as being a part of their territory, notwithstanding the fact that population-wise, it's about 1.2 million. The Hungarian population is roughly 100, 100 they say 125,000, which, which it very well could be, I'm not sure. But it's about it's no more than 10 percent and yet they they assert uh, rights there they do things which are frankly internationally uh, wrongful in terms of international law like for example they've been issuing passports in in Carpathia, ukraine in zekarpatia hungarian passports meanwhile it's against ukraine's constitution to have two uh, citizenships other countries do allow double citizenships but that's always pursuant to treaties like, for example, the United States allows dual citizenships with many countries. Uh, but that's because there's a treaty. Well, they haven't taken the step of negotiating a treaty with Ukraine. Instead, they just go out and issue their own passports, which attacks the sovereignty of, of Ukraine. Uh, they've also done things in the past, like appointed a person to be the commissioner of, uh, of uh, 
Carpatho uh, affairs and, uh, and, and as though it was a part of their territory, and, and it isn't. And that, I think, is, a, is, is playing into the hands of Vladimir Putin. Putin's goal is to disassemble Ukraine, to have Hungary, and he's supporting Hungary very much by way of construction of nuclear power plants and, and loans that he's providing. His goal is to have Western Ukraine split off to Hungary, Eastern Ukraine he's already working on with the war in Donbass, which has now taken on seven years of killing uh, Ukrainians. And uh, he's already worked on taking over Crimea. Uh, the next step may very well be northern Ukraine. But uh, these things cannot be allowed to go on, especially when you're dealing with a country like Hungary, which is not only a part of the EU, but it's also a part of NATO. And it's very important for the United States and uh, countries like the U.S., uh, Britain, France, Germany, to assert themselves and say, look, this is not consistent with what our values are, which is you, you signed an agreement and you recognize the territories as they exist, and you have to abide by that. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsia. My pleasure. I have been speaking with Bodan Chandor, who is president of Chandor & Company, a management consulting firm, and he's been sharing with us some of his observations and memories of being in Ukraine in 1991 when independence was declared. And I'm Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Kanenitsya, a podcast series about interesting and remarkable Ukrainians from around the world. And of course, today's episode of Kanenitsya is a special edition produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has been serving the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now. <laughs>